So, Father, I want to thank you for the word of God. I want to thank you, God, that it's alive, it's active, it's living, it's breathing. It corrects challenges, aligns, brings us to points of repentance, forgiveness, restoration. There's so much about it that's powerful. God, I pray just alike with what the, the book of Revelation says over and over. To him who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. So, Holy Spirit, we give you permission to speak to us this morning. Whether we're here, whether we're online, God, we need to hear your voice, your wisdom, your clarity, your direction in our lives. So, God, I pray for your help for each one of us. Help us to discover you this morning, your love and your goodness, your blessings. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, first off, I want to just say this. Can we give it up for Henry real quick? He did the intro last week. Um, you know, they, they called me in the middle of the week. They said, Pastor. And I said, uh, cover me. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know how I'll feel. Um, this week, I didn't feel that way. I was pretty confident that I would be here this morning, but I really thought Henry did a great job of laying some of the groundwork. Um, you know, I, I want to talk to you some about the book of Revelation. It is a very um, controversial book. Can we all agree with that? How many of you guys have heard it taught, and when you heard it taught, any piece of it, you thought to yourself, that, that's kind of confusing. I don't totally understand this. Because the book is full of types. It's full of actual language, like literal stuff. It's full of allegories. It's full of symbols. Now, here's the danger with it, though. If you go too far, you can misinterpret the book. And if you don't go far enough, then you, you give it no weight, no umph. So my hope is, as we do this, I'm going to tell you times when I'm teaching that I'm going to say stuff like this to you. This is Pastor James's opinion of this. Okay, there's other times I'm going to say the scriptures say this clearly, clear as day, and you should not waver in whether or not it says that. But I'm going to try to do the best I can to present to you the different interpretations or potential understandings of the book of Revelation. The first thing I want to say is it's this. It's a book that was written to the churches. So you shouldn't think it's so weird that you shouldn't read it. Now, I want to talk to some of you for a second who are afraid. If you're afraid of the end of the world, raise your hand. By the way, you should all raise your hand a little, but you're believers, so all, all things going well, we ain't going to be here. But that said, when you read this, it can be a little bit what? Scary. Okay, the book itself says that if you'll read it and study it, that there's a blessing in it. So we should never look at God telling us, like, think like this. God has given you the playbook for the end of the world. Why do you think he did that? So that you'd be freaked out or at peace? Thank you very much. So if you're a little bit like, breathe. I'm going to try to encourage you through this whole thing. Some of it is for real. I'm not going to lie to you. Other parts of it, I think that maybe we're in our own heads. But this book is allegoric. It's figurative. It's literal. It's past. It's present. It's future. Listen, it is, it, this is Pastor James's opinion, but I'm going to prove some of this to you today. It is one of or the most Christological book in the Bible. You're like, Crystal, what? A, huh? It represents Christ as well or better than any other book in the Bible. It's showing you the person in the work of Jesus himself. Why did he come and what's he going to do in the future? So as we study it, you should be doing this. Like, I understand Jesus way better now. I understand his purpose way better. I understand that he's God way better now. That's my hope in teaching you this. It demonstrates, again, more than any other book in the Bible, in my estimation, Jesus the Christ. Revelation simply means this. It's an unveiling. 
In other words, it's unveiling Jesus. It's showing him in his fullness. And I want to encourage you, you should not get like freaked out about this book at all. Okay, so let me pause for a quick second. I did give you notes. You will need more notes than the notes I gave you. So if you're a note taker, if you're a Berean, for those of you who know what that means, you go study what I teach you, you're going to need a notepad, not that little note thing I handed to you. And I encourage you, take lots of what? You know how I got equipped in the scripture? You're like, well, you went to Bible college. No, I'm talking before that. I used to sit every week and I took notes. And you know what I did when I went home? I looked up the notes. When, when a pastor said, this, this scripture says blah, 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 I'd go home and look it up. By the way, you know, the Bible actually says that you should study to show yourself approved. It says that you should do that on your own. Listen, I want your questions. I want you to disagree with me. I want you to come and say, but pastor, Jesus said this. And I go, oh, I'm either going to go back to the drawing board or I'm going to tell you how wrong you're. No, I'm kidding. I'm playing with it. But I want your questions. So please don't think that if I say something, you can't. Just don't do it. Don't stand up in the church and say, pastor, you're wrong. Don't do that. Come talk to me on the side. Send me an email. Send me a text, whatever it is. I'd love to answer your questions. I will even bring those questions public so other people learn from them as well. So I want to encourage you. Read, learn, study, ask questions, all of that. This book, and Henry shared this last week as well, verse 19 of Revelation chapter 1. This book has a built-in outline. Watch what it says. He's speaking to John. He says, therefore, in other words, because all these things I just told you, which we're going to walk through those in a second, the things which you have seen, in other words, all the things that have already happened, Okay, the things which are the churches that you're going to address right now and the things which will take place after this. It's in a built in outline. So basically what you have in chapter one, you have the things which were that were two and three are the churches, the things that are now. This is he's speaking to John from four on. It's all prophetic. They okay, say all prophetic with me. It's all it's all future. Not a single thing is passed once you hit. Chapter 4, it's all things that will happen in the future. Now, we shared this with you last week. There are some scholars who will disagree with that statement. They're a very small, slim group of people. They believe that all of, all of the book of Revelation has already occurred. I disagree with that interpretation entirely, for the record. It's called a preterist view. If that were the case, then we would have a lot more spiritual activity and a lot more peace on the earth. Let me say amen. Because this doesn't feel like heaven to me. What about y'all? Okay, so I, I think that in and of itself is a statement that proves that particular case. Okay, so understanding the book is super important because poor interpretation will lead to bad eschatology. You're like, Esco, what are you? I know I'm giving you guys some technical words. End times events. How does the end of the world happen? If you have bad interpretation, you'll have a bad understanding of how it happens. If you have good interpretation, you'll have a good understanding of how it happens. Now, last thing I'm going to share, and then we're going to jump into verse 9 and walk through a bunch of verses together. When I study the Bible, this is how I study, and I want to encourage you, you sh that you should study it similarly, particularly when you get into prophetic literature. Anytime you're looking at anything that's prophetic, the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel has a bunch of stuff, Daniel has a bunch of stuff, the minors have stuff in it, the book of Revelation, the Gospels have plenty of prophetic language, future, most of the New Testament alludes to prophetic language, Thessalonians over and over talks about the end of the age. All of those things you should study holistically. What do I mean? Genesis to Revelation. So you should not grab a verse and build a doctrine on it. You should grab a verse, check it against the rest of Scripture to build a, a position on it. 
So when you're studying the Bible, you should think, if the Bible says angels, and I'm going to get into this in just a second, what does it mean? If the Bible says the churches, what does it mean? Is it talking about a future church, a past church, an existing church? Is it talking to us today? Now, when we get into the churches, you're going to find this, that it's historic, it's literal. This literally happened. These were literal churches. You're going to find types in it, and then you're going to find admonitions to every single church that's ever existed, that there's a piece of it that is not only a correction, but it's a promise. And we're going to touch those when we go through the churches. We're only going to get to one of the churches this morning, but all of the rest of them we'll get to over the next couple of weeks. And we'll build pieces of the puzzle that will apply, I promise you, to every single one of us in the room at different times of our lives. Okay, so it's really important that you understand, take a full overview of Scripture. Now that said, let's jump in. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. It, it says, he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in tribulation and in kingdom and in perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, called, because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So, so John is starting to present to you a little bit of the layout of what it means, what he's seeing, and what he's laying out. So the first thing is he says, I'm in tribulation. This is distress or pressing. If you don't understand this, the church throughout history has been in a position of pressing. Now, when he's talking tribulation, he's not talking the great tribulation, the seven-year period of time. He's talking about all churches experience trouble, tribulation, pressing. Now, I don't know if you guys understand this, but in these days, the church world was very, very controversial. The Jews did not like the Christians. The Romans, even more so, hated the Christians. How much did they hate them? Come on, ask me the question. Okay. They tormented them. They put, them on, put tar on them. They lit them on fire so that they'd be like streetlights as you entered the city. Nero did that. They beheaded them. They threw them to lions. They, they gutted them. They, they, they boiled them in oil like John, and they exiled them to the Isle of Patmos. How many of you guys ever burned yourself? I, I made a quesadilla the other day. I burned my wrist, touched the pan. I was like, ooh, that hurt. Could you imagine boiled in oil? No, I don't think any of us can even contextualize that. We can't. But what they were doing is they were persecuting the church. They were testing the church. So when John says this, it wasn't like he was experiencing like small tribulation, small pressure. They tried to kill him. They tried to take him out. And now he's on the Isle of Patmos, and he's getting this revelation of Jesus, and he's going to communicate it to us. And it says of John that he was in spirit. Now, this is interesting because... I've read a lot prepping for the book of Revelation. I've listened to lots of different people. The way to understand this book is with a spiritual lens. Now, I need to say this really clearly. I'm not saying be overly spiritual, because you can spiritualize anything, can you not? Oh, I looked at this picture on the wall, and Jesus said you should go get a burger instead of quesadilla. You know, whatever. I'm making it up. You know, you can spiritualize just about anything. Or you can put on actual discernment of the Spirit and say, well, as I read this, Jesus... Will you help me to understand how this applies to my life? How this applies to me as a believer? What does it mean for me in my lifestyle? Like, do you all know that you're supposed to be the light of the world? Now, I understand Jesus is the light. We're like the, the little radiance or reflections of him. How's your light shining? 
How's your shine? Yeah, I'm going to let it shine here. So he's singing to my left. That's good stuff. How's your light shining? Because we always should be measuring ourselves with how are we reflecting or representing Jesus. See, the scriptures are not clear whether or not John's location changed. So when he said, I'm in the spirit, literally that is in spirit. We don't know for sure whether or not John was still physically where he was at scene or if he was taken up into heaven. The Bible doesn't say, so we're not going to read into what we think that is. But we do know this, that what he was experiencing was clearly supernatural. It was clearly otherly. It was clearly spiritual. Now, can I say something to you, please? And don't get offended with me. Some of y'all think of spiritual life too naturally. In other words, if you're going to live spiritually, when you read this book, it's going to get weird. Somebody say weird. And if you just try to figure it out logically, you won't. You've got to put on a spiritual lens to understand this book. Please understand, I'm not saying check your mind at the door. You guys know me. I'm an intellectual. I love reading. I love being technical. I love that stuff. But if you don't view this spiritually, you won't understand it. How are you going to understand bowls of wrath and seals and trumpets? How are you going to understand if you go like, this is all natural? It's not all natural. It's a distinctly spiritual book, and you should think of it that way. John is in the spirit, so it's super important that we have that kind of lens. I want to suggest to you this. All things are spiritual. Somebody say, all things are spiritual. I'm going to prove what I'm saying to you right now. All things are spiritual. When we look at the scriptures, they're supernatural. Otherly, they're holy. Even the Spirit of God is the one who wrote the books. Like we think, oh, Paul wrote. No, Paul was inspired by the Spirit to write. The book itself is alive. It's active. It's spiritual. So there are many people who try to discover God. They read the book, but they never discover him because they never put on a spiritual lens. So just a few things I want to establish for you. The Scriptures are written by the Spirit of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. The scriptures are alive, they're living, they're breathing, they're active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. The scriptures are spiritually appraised, and this is 1 Corinthians 2.14-16. Again, I don't have time to go do all these, you've got to take notes. The scriptures are the timeless word of God, Isaiah 40, verse 8. The scriptures point to Jesus as the word of God, John 1.14. I was not exhaustive in this list. I could have spent two more pages telling you what the scriptures say about the scriptures. I'm just painting a picture for you. They are spiritual. Listen, don't read into it. That's called eisegesis. It's when you read into it. Anybody ever been offended by anyone? Ooh, I bet you they were talking to me, but you don't know it to be true for sure. Come on, everybody's hand can go up. You ever wondered, are they talking about me right now? That's called you're reading into it, eisegesis. Exegesis says you know for a fact that it happened. Let the scriptures interpret the scriptures. As I said to you, when it's my opinion, I'll tell you this is my opinion. When it's fact, I'll say this is what the scriptures say. I'll let you know where I'm at and why I'm saying what I'm saying. The last thing is this. Ask the Spirit to give you understanding. It's a spiritual book. The Spirit is the one who teaches us. Listen, I love y'all. I'm not your teacher. I'm a pastor with the gift of teaching, but if the Spirit doesn't speak through me, you don't learn a thing. It's really important that you understand that because the Spirit is the one who leads and corrects and guides and, and reveals and gives us understanding. So you should be praying, God, help me to understand what this means for me, my life, for us, our church, for the region, this, this area, Fontana, for the world. What does it mean for us? 
You should be asking the Spirit to give you smarts or understanding. So point one, lamps and lordships. This is about understanding the purpose of the church, that Jesus is key in the church, the mission of the church, that it's to be the light of the world. And this is Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. He says this, he says, saying, write in the book what you see. So this is Jesus speaking to John. He says, and send it to the seven churches. Now, now these are literal churches, by the way. So they're literal. I'm also going to show you later as we're going through them, these are also types of churches. He says, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Incidentally, the, the number seven is always the number of completion. So when Jesus is speaking, speaking to seven churches, types, or literal churches, there are seven lampstands complete. And he says, And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one who was like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. Seven churches, seven lampstands, one Son of Man. Incidentally, who else can tell me when the Son of Man shows up another time in Scripture? I mean, you guys are Bible students. You guys like the fiery furnace, Daniel chapter 3. You guys remember this? They throw Adrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. Listen, they heated this furnace up so much that the people who threw them in burned up. I, like, you got to get the picture of this. And, and then Nebuchadnezzar's watching. He's like, so how are they doing? What's going on? He's peering in. He's like, man, I see three, but wait, there's a fourth. And this one glows like the son of man. Pretty much scholars across the board believe this. I believe this, that that fourth person, the son of man, was a picture of Jesus in the fire with them which incidentally is a promise. When you go through the fire, he will be. Thank you very much. It's a promise. You're seeing this very same thing here, and you're seeing like, I see one like the Son of Man, and he's clothed. See, this picture speaks of both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. He's fully God, and he's fully man. See, it says that his robe was reaching to his feet. Now, anytime you see a robe in Scripture, it, you will understand that it's somebody with a position of authority. So, for example, robes were worn by the judges. So if you go read the book of Judges, they were clothed in a robe and by the priests. So when you see Jesus with the robe, what it's representing is his judicial and his priestly authority. Remember I said to you that this book is Christological. Who was Jesus? What kind of authority does he have? So when you, all authority, exactly. Now, some of you, you're like, I get it. I love Jesus. I don't know to need to know all these details. I just need to know I'm going to heaven. God bless you for the rest of you who want to know a little more. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. Nothing wrong. I'm just saying for those you want to be able to have a reason, an answer for the hope that lies within you, for those you want to talk to a Mormon, for those you want to talk to a Muslim, for those you want to talk to a Jehovah Witness, for those of you who want to talk to somebody who has some aberration or heretical thought of Jesus, you need this language. You need this authority to do that. See, when I was talking to that Muslim gentleman, and I'm not done. I'm just praying. Not done quite yet. I figure I'm going to go around with him a few more times. But the Muslims believe that Jesus is a prophet, and they honor him. Like they say his name, and then they rattle off a whole bunch of Arabic language anytime they say his name. And when I was talking with him, I, I, he said, but I, I love Jesus. I believe he was a prophet. I go, but was he the Messiah, the Son of God? No, God can't be a man. You're going to see right here, Jesus is saying, my priestly authority as the high priest 
And my judicial authority to judge mankind was given to me. That's why I have a robe that touches my feet, which is, again, a position of authority. So when you're, when you're reading this, you want to understand, like Psalm 133, 1 through 3, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For it's like the precious oil upon the head coming down on the beard, even Aaron's beard. Who was Aaron? The high priest. Okay? There, there's types. Like I said, let the scriptures interpret the scripture. So Aaron's a high priest. Jesus is a high priest. They both have robes coming down upon the edge of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. In other words, the anointing of God. For there the Lord commands a blessing, life forever. See, feet are a reference to the authority of Jesus touching the earth. Now, how many of you guys are Bible students? You like the book of Ephesians? You like the armor of God? I like the armor of God, too. Put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and shod your feet with what? Gospel of peace. Jesus' feet touching the earth is the assurance in of the gospel of peace. See, this is important for you to understand, technically speaking, because it helps you to understand that all of that language is not arbitrary. It is proven, is established authority by God himself. So this is a reference, though, to Isaiah 52, 6 to 15. You can write that down. You can check it when you get home. This is a messianic prophecy. One of the verses in this, Isaiah 52, 10, it says, The Lord has, has bared his holy arm in the sight of all nations, Everybody sees it, not just the Jews, that, that, all, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of God. By the way, the feet who touch the earth, that's in the same passage. I just read you one verse of it. So again, there's always connections, Old Testament and New, when you're studying this book. It's important to understand this. This promotes the authority of Christ nearly 800 years before he's born. Okay, so... Please don't think the language is arbitrary. Please don't think it's poetic. Please don't think it's just pretty. Please understand that it's positioned to establish Jesus, who he is as the Christ. It says that he was girded with a golden sash. Now, now I'm over with somebody right now with this kind of fun. So, so how many of you guys know, know who Noah is? Noah, raise your hand. He's back at the board. Noah's Celeste's son, Celeste and Jerry. See, see Noah... Noah made homecoming court. Oh, man, it's so cool, yeah, because he's so cute. How did you know Noah was on homecoming court? If you saw the Facebook post, he had a what? That's how you knew he was on court. How do you know that Jesus is the son of God? The sash. Incidentally, if you go back to Exodus 28, you will read the priestly attire. You will find that the priests had a sash, which demonstrated their authority to minister on behalf of God. These are not arbitrary. They're all distinct connections. And to me, I just think it's amazing. So, so Revelation 1:14, continuing on, it says that his head and his hair were like white wool. They were like snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. Man, I just got to pause. How many of you guys like, like, just for a second, I'm not even done reading this. How many of you guys like, like, sci-fi movies? This is better than any sci-fi movie you've ever seen. Like, if you actually drew this, you'd have, like, glowing, like, like Sammy's not here this morning. Sammy has white hair, and when it's long, he looks like Moses. I love it. It's, like, super awesome. Eyes glowing, sash, robe to his feet. Like, think regal. Think powerful. Think supernatural. His eyes, like, burning. Like, you couldn't, his eyes would be like looking at the sun. 
Man, sometimes we minimize this stuff. It's, it's just picturesque language. No, no, no. John is seeing a vision. We're, Bible's super clear about this. He's seeing something no one has ever seen. He's getting a glimpse of heaven. He's getting a glimpse of Jesus in his glorified state. You should understand that this is Christological. This is Jesus saying, I have all authority. I'm super powerful. The reason you're seeing me this way is because I've been established this way by my Father who's in heaven. You should understand that so that when you're battling with people, you can give them an answer. Okay, so his eyes, verse 15, it says, His feet were like burnished bronze, and when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. We'll explain that later. And in his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Wow, what a picture. So, so head and hair, head and hair. White speaks of, of purity, speaks of wisdom, and it speaks of righteousness. You can reference Proverbs 16.31 for that. His eyes like flames of fire. Revelation 19 speaks of this, as does chapter 2 of Revelation. Hebrews as well, Old Testament as well. See, and what it's saying is this, that God sees all. God knows all. Listen, there's nothing hidden from his sight. Like, you know, one of the scariest things for me is that God sees everything. Because when you're just wanting to act the fool just a little bit, no one's watching. You're in your car. You're all alone. No, you know, you're just driving along. Guy cuts you off. You're like, ah. God sees it. You have a little, God sees it. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't make me always feel comfortable. That makes me feel a little bit of what? Afraid. Now, now listen, listen, I want to be real clear. You should not be afraid of God, but you should fear and reverence his holiness. See, there's a healthy boundary there. Don't make God so comfortable that you're never afraid of sinning against him. But don't make him so like religious that you don't have any room for grace. There's a, there's a tension in that to walk with Jesus. So, so listen, as you're looking at this stuff, eyes of flames. So listen, an encouragement for you. We should all love and adore, love and adore that God corrects us. How many of you guys are happy that God actually corrects you? Listen, all of your hands should go up. Because if he didn't correct you, you'd be in a mess. You'd be in a world of hurt. I love when God nudges me and says, uh-uh, son. No, no, no. Don't, don't go there. Don't do that. I don't want you to no. know. The fallout, not worth it, son. Don't do it. I, I love it when he does that. See, we should never be afraid of this kind of language. See, we are constantly called to live a lifestyle of repentance. We're constantly called to check ourselves against God's standards, his righteousness, and his holiness. And then we're over and over called to repent. Now, can I give you just a really like, for those of you who, like, listen, don't fear. Don't fear that intensity of Jesus, those eyes that burn. Don't fear it. shouldn't fear it. You know why you shouldn't fear it? Because if he didn't do it, you'd be in more hurt. Draw near to it. Listen, you can trust that if Jesus is saying that's not good for you, that what? It's not good for you. Listen, and if you're bucking up against that, you should probably check the rebellion going on in your heart because there's something happening. But I, man, I love, I, I, okay, so I'll, t I'll tell you guys a little story. I didn't intend to tell this story, and, and I'm trying to stay on time too. So, so those of you who know, I, like I had surgery, and I had an infection thing, and, and it was lame, and I was on lots of medicine, and, and you're trying to recover. So I want to tell you, I, I just want to share, call it a testimony of listening and obeying. So like I said, over and over in the middle of the night, I would wake up and, you know, if you don't feel well, you just want to sleep. Like, you don't want to wake up at three in the morning. You're like, really, Jesus, got to talk to me now. Couldn't do it while I was laying on the sofa all day because I felt lousy. No, I, just honest. That was a little bit of my attitude. 
And after that happened a few days and I was kind of resistant to get up and actually read, um, I think it was like the second or the third day when he said, hey, I want you to get up and read. I just did it. I didn't like, really, you couldn't talk to me at 8 o'clock when I was awake. Jesus said that, you know, that would have been much easier for me. I need my sleep. Don't you know i got to heal? That kind of student, like, yeah, thank you. That does sound pretty dumb when you're saying it to God. You guys get what I'm saying? So I get up and I start reading, and, he, and he's kind of encouraging me. Honor comes before, or honor comes after humility. You have to be humble if you want to be honored, and, and if you want me to lift you up, you have to bow low. You can't argue with me. Oh, and if you called me in your distress, I'll hear you and I'll heal you. And there's times where God's presence, like there was one time Bella was playing her guitar and singing. We were at, um, over at Grandma's house and we were doing a little Bible study thing. And no one else knew it, but I'm sitting there like fighting back tears just because the song, it was a, the, the song, I speak the name of Jesus. Yeah, love it. But she's singing and I'm sitting there going like, oh, this is like water to my soul. That's what it just felt like a cleansing. It felt refreshing. It felt like God was lifting me up. So, so oftentimes, when we're in seasons like that, we've got to listen to what God is saying. So, so I wasn't feeling well. I started to get better, and I started to get worse. And I'm just measuring my body. No energy, not feeling. I'm like, something's going on. So I go to urgent care, and then I go see my doctor, and, and they prescribe me more antibiotics. And, and by the way, I was on IV stuff. I was, it was a lot of stuff. And, and so that you guys know, what I went through was not like life-threatening. It was just painful and a pain in the rear. It was a bummer. So, so I, I'm, he issues me more antibiotics and I start taking them. I take them for one day and they're making my stomach upset, all kinds of stuff. And I get up and I, I'm like, this is in the morning. I'm like, Lord, Lord, th this is lame. Why won't you just heal me? And, he, and God is my witness. He said, why are you taking antibiotics? Yeah, I'm just telling you, this is how I interact with God. I'm not trying to be all, woo. why are you taking antibiotics? And I, this was my honest response. Because I'm afraid. I like what I went through. The, the guy, the surgeon told me, he goes, this is like pain level 10. This is like the male version of childbirth. It was not fun. It was very, very painful. And I said, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I don't want to. I don't want to. And, and then the Lord said this to me. Has fear ever healed anyone? And I said, no. He said, stop taking the antibiotics. Your body doesn't need more antibiotics. Your body needs to heal. For those of you who don't know, you take antibiotics, it depletes everything in your system, good, bad, all of it. So I went the other direction. I started doing probiotic stuff, which, and I'm not, listen, I'm not a naturalist. I'm not like, go eat plants. I'm not that guy. I, I'm not. I like hamburgers. I'm just saying. But, you know, if God says you should be proactive in your healing, then you should be proactive, not reactive. So listen, when I say all this, I'm saying, listen, when God starts to nudge you, minister to you, speak to you, you should do what? Listen. Because God will do this with you, incidentally. If you're not listening, though, you won't what? You won't hear it. I want, my encouragement to you is just, listen, when God is in the mix, when he's doing that thing, when, when he's refining you, you should trust it. Whether it's emotional, whether it's relational, physical, whatever Jesus says is right. Somebody say Amen. And, you, and we should listen to that. Okay, let's keep going, though. Let's get back into the text. It says that he had feet of burnished bronze. Anytime you see bronze in the scripture, this is a picture of judgment. Feet touching the earth in judgment. That's the picture 
that's going on right here. And the feet always speak of judgment. And it says his voice was like many waters. One of my favorite verses ever. See, his voice is always about direction and it's always about communicating love, even if it's corrective. You ever know this thing? Like when God corrects you, you know that that's out of love? Okay, watch, watch. How many of y'all are parents? Come on, raise your hands. You ever told your kid not to do something? Did you tell him because you're mad or because you love him? Because you love him. It's the exact same thing. He communicates direction and love. In the Song of Solomon 8, 7, it says, Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all of his riches for love, it would be utterly despised. So again, these are all pictures of who he is. Now, when we speak of voice, understand this, that God is always the one who speaks. So when Jesus says, my voice is like many waters, he's saying, I am like what? God. That's what's happening. Notice also the picture of water. Water always represents life and cleansing. So when he speaks, it will bring you life and it will what? It'll cleanse you. It's what it's designed to do. It says in his right hand were seven stars. Now the seven stars, we're going to later find out that those are the angels to the churches. He's speaking of his authority over the angelic realm, over spiritual hosts. In, in Ephesians 4.8, it says that he led captivity captive, gave gifts to men. So these are all pictures of the spiritual realm and how they work. It says in his mouth, there was a two-edged sword. This is the authority of the spoken word of God. This is also confirmed in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, when it says the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides soul, spirit, joints, marrow, and it'll judge the attitude and the intention of the heart. See, the Word of God is designed to get in our world and to shape us up. It's designed to do surgery on us in a positive way, make us well. It says his face was like the shining sun. By the way, you know that later in Revelations, it's going to say that there's no need for a physical sun anymore because God will light the place? This is Jesus saying, I'm, I'm the guy lighting the place. These are all pictures of Christ's authority over creation, over everything. See, heaven doesn't have any need for that light because now Jesus will be the one that lights it. Revelation 1, verse 17, it says, And when I saw this, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He says, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Don't be afraid. Again, remember, this, this, you've got this extreme opposites of a natural man seeing spiritual things, and he's like, ah. I'm seeing heaven. I'm seeing the risen Lord. I'm seeing his glory. And he falls like a dead man. And then it's almost like casually Jesus is like, oh, don't be afraid. I'm sorry. I think I'd still be afraid. I'm just saying. You know, like you're seeing some pretty supernatural stuff. He says, don't be afraid. Watch. I'm the first and the last. Who else is the first and the last? You guys, remember that language in the Old Testament? Alpha, Omega, first, the last. Same expression. Jesus is saying, I'm God. Watch. I'm the living one. In other words, I was always living. I became alive as a man. I was dead as a man. And behold, I'm alive again, risen from the dead. For how long? Forever. Eternal. So listen, he's saying, listen, I was God. I am God. I died for you. And that, that promise, that aliveness is forever. Watch it. He says, and I hold the keys to death and to Hades. Now, now listen, when John sees this, he falls like a dead man. Now, I love our current... Christian community and people out there preaching. And sometimes I hear people tell stories. You know, you guys ever heard a preacher tell a story like, yeah, I was up in heaven and I was chatting with an angel and I, and I was chilling with Jesus. 
you know, I, I just have an opinion. This is just my opinion. I don't ever see anywhere in scripture where somebody encounters the living God and does anything other than falling on his face like a dead man. We see this in Isaiah chapter 6. We see this when Moses encounters the glory of God in Exodus 34. He says he bows low in worship. And that was only seeing the hindsight of God's glory. He didn't see what John has seen. What John has seen is even more powerful. You see it in Daniel. He falls like a dead man when, when Jesus shows up to him. All over, Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven. Or he actually doesn't even call it himself. He says, I know a man who was caught. He saw things that were so miraculous. I can't even speak of those things. So listen, I'm going to suggest to you that when people show up and they say, oh yeah, I got an angel on my right hand, an angel on my left, and, and Jesus is right here sitting next to me, they're probably not accurate. Just going to suggest that. Now I'll let them stand before God ultimately. I'm not going to, but when I look at the scriptures, I don't see a single occasion where somebody encounters God and is just so casual about it, like, oh yeah, it's just me and Jesus chilling. Yeah, we're just hanging out like we went and got Starbucks together, no big deal. I don't see that. So I would challenge you that when somebody does that, you should listen with an attentive ear. Because it's likely not, likely, I didn't say absolutely, likely not biblical. Okay? So there, I, I said it. Now somebody's hanging up on Facebook or something. I don't know what's... Okay, so the first and the last, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the living one who is dead, still alive forevermore. Keys, anytime you see keys, keys always equal access and authority. If you give somebody the keys to your house, they have what? Access to your house. Watch. And permission to come in because you gave them a what? This is exactly the same thing Jesus is saying. I'm the one who holds the keys to death and to Hades. Now, death, when we're speaking of this, Jesus' resurrection demonstrates his power over death. This is super important for us to understand. That he came as... I'm going to get technical for a second. You guys okay? Are you guys still alive? You still out there taking notes? Come on, some of you are like, no, pastors, just tell me Jesus loves me, please. Okay, Jesus loves you, now pay attention. Uh, listen, listen. Why did Jesus come as a man? To die for us. To die for us. That's an accurate answer. To save us. To save us. Accurate answer. You know that if you talk to most of the, the cults, many of them, and you talk to a lot of other religions like, like Muslims and so forth, they will say this to you, God cannot be a man. So there's a problem with that. Why did Jesus come as a man besides saving us? Okay, okay I'm just going to answer it. I got a lot of talking. Conquer death through humanity. You're on the right track. I'm going, to, I'm going to define it simply, but more clearly. You guys remember Adam? Our great, 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 great. Yeah. He sinned, didn't he? When he sinned, was he physical or spirit? Physical. He was physical. So when Jesus, who's the last Adam in the New Testament, referenced that several times, he had to come physically to reverse the curse of sin to set us free from the power of sin and death. So why did Jesus come as a man? Because the first Adam failed, the last Adam did not. Why did he come in the flesh? Because he had to reverse the power of the curse of sin. So he demonstrated by a perfect righteous life, a sinless life, and then he became the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, sacrifice for the sins of the world. So next time somebody tries to minimize Jesus, Jesus can't, God can't be a man, do you understand how offensively they're speaking about your Savior? Now listen, I'm not telling you get in a fight with them. That's not what I'm saying. 
What I'm saying is don't let them minimize him. Because if they don't understand that he reversed the curse by becoming a man and demonstrating a perfect life to reverse that curse, then they don't completely understand at all why God could potentially be a man. See, this is a significant point of theology. Listen, how important is it? It sets us aside from every other religious system in the whole world. That's how, like, what I just said to you is key. Like, you should understand that. He reversed in his flesh the curse of sin and death placed on mankind by Adam. That's why he came in the flesh, and that's why he's still God. Okay, so important stuff to understand. He says that he did that, that he has power over death in Hades. Now, Hades is a place of holding for evil spirits. Um, you can reference this in Luke 16 when, when you see them looking across Abraham's bosom, and he says, man, I'm thirsty over here, and the others are not thirsty. I don't want to get into great detail. I'll talk about it later in this study. But Hades is a place of holding for evil spirits. What Jesus said is, I have the power over natural death. I have the power over all hell. So, again, demonstrating his authority. Then verse 19, it says, Therefore, write these things which you have seen. All of what he just saw. He said, write this stuff down. It's good stuff, John. Not only do you need it, the local churches, but in the future, people like you and I are going to need this language. He says, Therefore, write the things down which you've seen, the things which are, the things which have taken place, and, and the things that will take place after these things. We've already touched that verse. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I want to touch something really quickly. If you do any reading, listening to other people, that word angels is translated messengers. The word actually is messenger in the Greek. Some scholars will say that that means pastors of the churches. I don't agree with that interpretation. When you look at angels or angelicos in Scripture, you will see over and over that they're referenced and they're used to communicate messages from God that are very distinct and very purposeful. Right, let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. When you see in the book of Daniel that, that Gabriel is released to bring the message back to Daniel and then Michael is later released because they do battle with the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. These are all angelic hosts. So when, when this is saying angels, I have no reason to believe that that's a pastor. I have every reason to believe spiritually, biblically, that it's angels. So we see angels over nations. We see angels over regions. When a spirit is cast out, Matthew 12, he goes to arid places, waterless places. That's a region. We also know that, that angels are commissioned to each one of us. Say this right now, I have angels watching over me. Going to prove it to you. Yeah, yeah, you've got angels watching over me because the Bible says that he will command his angels, plural, concerning you and I. That means every single one of us has at least two. I think I might have 10 or 12 because I'm a little stupid sometimes, just saying. I might have a few extras just because. But we all know this, that, that angels are assigned to people, and we know this, that they're assigned to churches. So I'm of the opinion that this lens should be a spiritual lens not a trying to explain it naturally. Do you guys all understand what I'm saying? Now, for those who do explain it naturally, I got no hate for them. I just would not interpret this passage that way. I think it minimalizes the spiritual impact of what is going on in this text. Again, the book is spiritual, a little bit weird. If you keep spiritual lens, it becomes a little less weird. When you try to explain it naturally, it, the gap gets further, in my opinion, not closer together. So it's past, it's present, it's future. Okay, so now... We are actually going to touch 
one church, Ephesus. I'll do it uh, quickly, and then I'll bring it back up next week. When you're looking at the churches, all of the churches, you're going to see several things that occur with every church. Everybody okay? You still breathing? He's still okay? You're going to get pizza for the, the, the baskets in just a minute. For those of you who are hungry, you'll make it. Put on your seatbelts. We're, we're close. When you look at the churches, you're always going to see a description of Christ's glory with every church. There's seven churches that are mentioned. Of the seven, only two of them don't get rebukes, Philadelphia and Smyrna. All the rest of them get rebukes. So you're going to see, see a description of the risen Christ. Again, Christological in nature. You're going to see a commendation of the church. This is what you're doing great. You're going to see an affirmation. You're going to see a rebuke, the shortcomings, and instructions about what they need to do to correct those shortcomings. A command, you should listen to what the Spirit says, and a promise to those who persevere spiritually and who are overcomers. Okay, so with all of that said, let's take a quick look at the, at the church at Ephesus. Now, just to understand Ephesus, it was a wealthy seaport, lots of money in this place. So in Ephesus, there was a temple, and this temple was not one that honored God. It was a temple of sex. That's kind of weird, don't you think? Like, think Vegas on steroids. There's a temple of sex. And it was Diana or Artemis, depending on which language you translate it in. This temple at any given time would have a thousand temple prostitutes. So what was going on in this region is people were worshiping sex. Well, that sounds a little like America, you think? Okay, I digress. Um, anyway, so what, what you got going on is you, in Ephesus, you've got all these different pressures. So Paul helped establish the church in Ephesus. Many scholars think he spent about three years there. So there was a lot of influence there. When you read the, the epistle of Ephesians, incidentally, the church at Ephesus is the only church that got an actual epistle written to it. Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, the others, no letter written to them, only what you see in Revelation. Ephesus actually is considered the love letter epistle, and it makes sense considering that they left their first love. So Paul probably wrote that epistle somewhere in the 60s. We're now talking right around A.D. 100. And you've got this, like they've left just 30 years or so. They left their first love is what you're going to see in just a second. So it's a seaport. It's a lot of sex going on. They were open with sexuality, prostitution. You can do some additional reading, Acts 18 and 19. It'll further expound on that. So the first thing we're going to see is this, the description of Christ, Revelation 2.1. It says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven lampstands, says this. So he holds the seven stars. We know these to be angels. So he's demonstrating his authority over angels. And the one who walks among the seven lampstands. We know these lampstands to be literally churches. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but does every church have a lampstand? Yes? No? What do you guys think? I think yes. Does every church have an angel? I'm of the opinion yes. Does, is there a lot of spiritual movement around churches that we maybe don't recognize? I'm going to say yes. What I'm suggesting to you, it's more spiritual than you might think. That's actually what I'm suggesting to you. He says angel, like I said, some scholars will translate this as pastor. Don't believe that's an accurate interpretation. You know, angels, they're heavenly messengers. I already said they were assigned to nations. They were assigned to people. They were assigned to regions. Um, they're assigned to churches. See, listen, don't downplay the spirituality of this book. Jesus says, I have authority over the spiritual realm. I have authority over churches. That's what he just said. 
And you're going to see this as he goes on. Verse 2, this is the commendation. He says, I know your deeds. In other words, the stuff you're doing is good. I know your toil, how much you're working. I know how you've persevered, how you've stayed the course of what it is that you're trying to get done. And then watch this. And that you don't tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and you've endured for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. In other words, Jesus is like, man, you guys are doing the stuff. Your deeds are good. Your toil's good. Your perseverance, your discernment, you're recognizing people who are positioning themselves with spiritual authority who don't have it. Like, you're doing a great job. Listen, I think this is our church a little bit. By the way, when we hit the other seven, I'm going to say the same. I think this is our church a little bit. I think all of these types of churches apply to every church. Why do I think that? Because there's people in every church, and people are different. Now, I will say this, though. There's a lens over the church that, that all of us, like there's a culture of our church that is more distinctly one than the other, as an example. And when we're done with the churches, I'll tell you what I think our church is and where we need to grow and where we're doing well. That's what I'll tell you, but not till we're all done with the churches. I, I don't want to uncover that quite yet. So we see this commendation that they toil, they work hard, and they do it for Jesus' namesake. So the church of Ephesus was diligent and adhering to godly standards. Now here's my caution. Be careful of self-righteousness. Because any church who's doing it better than another church, because that's always the comparison, we're never measuring ourselves against the righteousness of God. You guys all understand that? Because who can stand against the righteousness of God? We are like this. Tell me if this is you. Yeah, I'm doing pretty bad, but I'm not doing as bad as her. <laughs> I'm doing pretty, but not as bad as him. Don't, don't we do that? But the reality is the measurement is against the righteousness of God, not our own self-righteousness. So when you do this, be really cautious of being self-righteous. Listen, be loving. Love like Jesus would. There's correction, but the correction is always done with love. And then Jesus does this in verse 4. He brings them the rebuke. I have this against you. You left your first love. Wow. Now, I try to put this in natural terms. This would be like me leaving Heather. This would be like you leaving Alexa. This would be like any one of us who's married, leaving the person that we're in love with. We're, we're leaving our first love. Now, that's a natural example. But what if it's a spiritual example? What if you're, you're doing all the stuff that looks religiously right, but it actually doesn't honor Jesus? See, because that, that's actually what's going on here. That's what John is saying. The stuff that this church is doing, they've left the priority of Jesus. They left that their lifestyle should be always honoring and adoring and raising up the possibility of what Jesus is doing in them. And notice they left it. They didn't lose it. That's really important. Listen, some of you in the room, you think this, I'm saved, I'm not saved. I was saved yesterday, but today I'm having a rough day, so I may not be saved. I might have lost my salvation. Can I say something to you lovingly? I don't think you can lose it. I do think you can leave it. See, one of the beauties of God is we're in relationship of love with him, which means that we are free will agents. We get to choose. I don't know if you ever really thought about that. Like, God chose you first, but did you all have to choose back? So you're like, oh, I don't know. My Bible mind thinks, let me help you. Whosoever will, whosoever will. I'm a whosoever. I know that for sure. Listen, God was knocking on the door of my heart for like three years solid before I said yes. 
For some of you, he's still knocking. You ain't even opened the door quite yet. Listen, listen. I understand this, that he expresses love. He's not willing that any would perish. Any. But you have a choice to respond to his love. They left. They did not lose. They left it. Now, I know for some of you, you're going to go, what about this verse? What about that verse? Let me summarize this. I'm going to answer this for you before you even send me the question. Say abide. Abide. Which means remain. Remember John 15? I and you, you and me, us and him. Remember that? If you abide in God, this is never an issue. Listen, you might have some times where you take a detour. Anybody ever taken a detour? Taken a detour too. Detours can be short. They don't have to be long. You can take, but if you abide in God, you will never have to worry about if you've lost your first love. See, because when you're in communion, relationship with God, he'll check you when you're off. How do I know that? I've had a lot of checking in my life. I think I've had more checking than affirmations, if I'm honest. A little hard-headed. Maybe the rest of you are like, Jesus, like, way to go. I'm like, he's like, really, James, again? That's what I feel like sometimes. I'm teasing a little bit, but I am saying this. If you abide with him, listen, I'll say it the way Pastor Chuck said it. If, when I was at Calvary Chapel Bible College, if you abide in Christ, you'll never have to worry about whether you have salvation or if you've lost salvation. Because if you're abiding, you're in relationship with him. You know. He's talking with you. He's walking with you. He's interacting with you. He's leading. He's correcting. He's directing. He's speaking. You open your Bible and the scriptures talk because that's what God promises to do with us. So if you're abiding, you'll never have to worry about any of what I just said. Listen, be careful of the frog in the pot. You guys know the story. You put a frog in a pot, turn the heat up. They'll stay there till they boil to death, not even aware that they've left anything. If you abide, you don't have to worry about whether or not you've left anything at all. So the encouragement is abide, abide, and then do some what? Abiding. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, 38, and 39. He says, I'm convinced, in other words, I am firmly established that neither death nor life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor any other created thing, watch, will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, nothing can separate you, but you can leave. He'll be, listen, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to go a few minutes over, but this is important. God is relentless about his love for you. Somebody say amen. amen. Yeah. You can go all sorts of stupid and God will chase you. You guys ever heard that nasty little pesky little parable in 99 and the one? That he'll leave the 99 to go after the one? One of my favorite things, like when I teach people about ministry, when I talk to the elders, I say, listen, at some points in time in every one of our lives, we're all the one. And as believers, we should be chasing the, the one. We should be chasing the one. How many of you guys know a one? How many of you guys are a one? <laughs> listen, you should be going after the person. They need you to love them the same way Jesus loves them. In fact, the way that Jesus might be loving them is through you. It's really, really important. The next one is this, the command. He gives them a command. He says in verse 5, he says, Therefore, remember from where you've fallen. How many of you guys can remember when you first got saved? Man, was it good stuff for what? I felt like every prayer I asked, Jesus said, you got it. Oh, you can have that too. You can have two of them. I'm like, this is awesome. Jeez. It changes when you get a little more mature just for the right. But I remember it. I remember feeling, watch, I'll be serious. I remember feeling forgiven. 
I remember feeling clean. Here's the number one thing for me, because you guys know I did drugs, sold drugs. I was free from it. I, for the first time in years, I had a choice that I could make to do it or not to do it. I didn't have that before. I didn't have the authority to say no. I was too bound by it and gripped by it. But all of a sudden, I'm in these situations. I'm like, no, I don't need that. No, I don't want that. No, I, I felt free. That's me. Now, I don't know what yours is, but I would encourage you, take some time. Sit with God. What did I feel like when I got saved? What stood out so distinctly for me when I became a Christian that just, because when you remember that, it establishes something in you today. He says, man, remember where you've fallen. Repent. Go the opposite way of the things that you're doing wrong. And do what you used to do at first. Watch this. Or else I'm going to come and I'm going to remove the lampstand out of its place if you don't repent. Now, I'm sorry, that's scary language. Would you all agree? That's why I said you should abide, abide, and do what else? Abide. If you stay in relationship with God, you'll know. Listen, failure and restoration, they're part of the human experience. You guys need to understand that. Like, let me say it nicely to you. You're going to mess up. You're going to mess up. That's, that's normal. By the way, I did not just say you should mess up. Hello? I'm not telling you that you should sin. What I am telling you is that you're going to sin sometimes. You're going to make mistakes. But the restoration, man, that comes from God, geez, that is just part of who we are. We're this side of heaven trying to live the righteousness of God. There are times you'll fail. You should think of it this way. This is all a pathway to restoration. This is how God gets us. He restores us, rebuilds us. Everybody fails. The key to this, though, is repent when you do. He says in verse 6, he says, man, but yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I'm going to do this quickly for you. The Nicolaitans, this is a stumbling block, something that destroys the people. It's a compound word in the Greek. It's Nike, which many of you are familiar with, victor, to have victory over. Laos, which is laity. It's, it's you. So let's say I over, was overbearing with you and I controlled you. That would be Nicolaitis. That's what it would be. It would be me controlling the laity by dominance. Now, there are some church movements that do that. And there's a lot of church movements in history that did that. How many of you guys ever heard of the indulgences in the Dark Ages where you would pay for sin? That's called Nicolaitis. Because what they were doing is they were charging people money for forgiveness. The church was like making money off of the people. So I, quick story, quick story. When, when I was a young kid, I told you guys I grew up in the Catholic church, and I've always been interested in knowing. How many of you guys, like, when you were young, you'd ask the question, like, how did God get there? That, that was me. I was that guy. Like, I don't get it. Like, I know where we got created, but what, what about God? Like, I would ask those types of questions. Well, and I started to, like, look at the Bible, and I'm like, I go to, like, Catholic Mass, and they don't ever read the Bible. I mean, they read a reading and maybe the gospel, but nothing. And so I remember saying to the priest one time, hey, where should I read the Bible? I was a kid. Like, I'm talking like eight or nine years old. I was a kid. And this is what he said back to me. You're not supposed to read the Bible. The priests are supposed to read the Bible. Now, the problem with that is I didn't know enough of the Bible to know that it says study to show yourself approved, that the word of God is living. I didn't know any of those things. So I just figured he's a priest. He knows what he's talking. That would be an example of being a Nicolaitan. He used his authority to minimize my authority in Christ. So my job as a pastor is to counsel and encourage you, but just like, please, I hope you all say he does this all the time. How often do I say to you, read your Bibles? 
How often do I say to you, sit with God, pray, worship? How often do I say to you, develop a relationship? How often do I say to you, listen, abide? Because my job is not to control you. My job is to equip you. Ephesians chapter 4. My job is to help you get on your feet so when things come up, you can say, what does God say? What does the word of God say? Now and again, you'll come with things that are beyond your knowledge and you come to somebody more mature, myself, you say, Pastor, what should I think about this? Nothing wrong with that. But you should have enough of the word of God in you that you can discern things that are going on in your life and how to handle them. That's my job is to teach you how to do that. So abide, read the word, all of those things. Man, he says, you stand against the Nicolaitans. Listen, you should never have somebody heavy-handed over you. If they're pointing you toward Jesus, great. If they're talking to you about other things, just dismiss it. That's not a person's position. There's only one mediator between man and God, and that is the man Christ Jesus, period. Me, I'm just here to help you grow. Any other pastor, they're supposed to be there to help you grow. Our job is not to be a Lord over you at any level. That's Jesus' job. The last thing is the promise. And we're going to close with this. Um, The promise in verse 7. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, Nike, now just a single word, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Question for you. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, why were they kicked out? Because they ate from the tree. What was God preventing them from getting to? The, the tree of life. Watch. Because he didn't want them to live forever in sin. That was why he kicked them out. Like, man, how mean he kicked them out of this cool, cushy garden. No, 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 no. He didn't want them to live perpetually with the knowledge of sin eternally. So he said, I need to remove them from the garden. I'm going to send Jesus to restore them. You will live eternally, by the way. Heaven or hell, you will live eternally, but the the summary of all of that is you'll live eternity in the paradise of God. He says, listen, if you'll do the things, if you'll adhere to your first love, I will give you the tree of life. See, there's two two trees in the garden, you guys. One gives you the knowledge of good and evil, the the other presents Jesus. Which one are you going to eat from? Incidentally, you can eat from that tree here on earth now. You can eat from that tree here the tree of life, study the life of Jesus, the principles of Jesus, the manner of Jesus, the call of Jesus, the correction of Jesus, and you will find this, close to Jesus, eating from the tree of life. It's just true. He promised you a fruitful life. He's the the tree. You're picking the fruit of Christ, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. Those are all of the promises that God gives us Man, he tells us that we get to eat from the tree that was forbidden from us if we'll overcome, if we'll return to our first love. You know, I wanted to have Santosh come up. He's going to play one song, and and I'm just going to, he's going to play behind me. I'm going to pray over you. Just in light of time, I'm going to wrap up. But but there are some things about this idea of first love that I want to talk to you about before I send you out. Now, as I said, All of the churches, as we look at them, are going to apply to all of us at different seasons of our life. Now, maybe as you're sitting here and as I start asking some questions, you might say, man, maybe I have left my first love and I didn't even realize it. You know, if I'm honest with you, some of the places as I've been studying this, God has been checking me. Are you prioritizing me in your life? Are your decisions running through my grid, not your grid? Are your actions running through my grid? 
not your grid? Are there things you're saying no to that I'm asking you to say yes to? Are there places in your heart that are not fully surrendered to me? See, listen, when you talk about first love, what you're talking about is prioritizing Jesus, making him preeminent in your life. Jesus says he's the first and the last. My question for you, is he the first and last for you? And only you know that. As you listen to the Spirit of God, how he leads and corrects you. See, listen, a lot of times what I've found, why don't you guys take the lights down? A lot of times what I've found is that when I'm off track with God, it's honestly not things that are evil. Like evil's pretty easy to recognize. I'm not sure if you guys, but, but if you're doing something that's foolish, drunkenness, you know, lust, whatever, cheating at work, stealing, th- those things are not that hard to recognize. You, listen, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know that God says don't do those things. And when you do them, you feel that immediate sense of conviction. It's more the things that are, that are harder to catch. The, you know, for you single folks, the people that you might be interested in dating. The, the careers that you might be interested in pursuing. For some of you who are or maybe not in the, the front stages of building your life, maybe it's the work that you aspire to or how much it crowds out your life with God. In other words, your work schedule demands of you time that should be devoted to God. Maybe it takes you away from priorities like your family and your children. Maybe God is saying stuff like this, I need you to be a spiritual leader in your home. I need you to lead. And you're like, but I don't know how to, or I'm afraid to, or maybe it would cause a fight. I don't always want my kids mad at me. I've been, you guys, I've been a pastor 20 years, and I've heard lots and lots of painful stories. And what I found is this, that anytime you point toward righteousness, when you've let unrighteousness creep in, whether it's deep and wide or little, little compromises, as soon as you set the track straight, there's always a battle. Listen, I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom. The devil doesn't give up easily what he's gained. It's just not how it works. But when you stand for righteousness, God makes ways. He makes you know, rivers in the desert and pathways in the wilderness. He makes valleys rise up and mountains go low. In other words, he says, if you'll do it my way, I will make it easy. That doesn't mean it's always going to what? Start easy. doesn't mean that. So as I ask these questions, I want you to take a personal assessment of your own life. Personal assessment of your own heart. So listen, bow your heads. Don't just try not to be distracted. Not a lot of questions, but just a few. The first one is so simple. Have you left? Have you left? Listen, I think you know if you left. You'll feel that kind of twinge in your heart with God like, I feel distant. I don't feel like I'm abiding. I don't feel like I'm close. I don't feel like I'm asking him the questions that like lead me to him. I just feel like I'm doing life. Another way you could ask it is, how's your love for God? Is he first? Is he priority? Is your lifestyle lived in such a way that other people accuse you of being a Jesus freak, which is a compliment in my book. How's your love for God? Are you seeking his direction, his will? See, anytime I ask myself questions like this, I always want to answer like, yeah, of course I'm doing great. Like, like none of us wants to think we're doing poorly. But if we're honest and we're honest before God, maybe we'll see some things where 
God will say, I want you to pay attention to this. No one, and I do mean no one, fools God. So you can think that you're okay, and if God is saying otherwise, let me help you out. You're not okay. Now, does that mean you're lost in some way? No, no, no. Just mean you're you're not aligned with him. You're not in tune or in, in sync with his purposes and his direction in your life. And what's cool about this, I love this. Like, like, like Jesus said so simply, if that's you, repent. In other words, stop doing what you're doing and go back to doing what you were doing. So the, the correction is like, I, I don't mean to sound so so trivial, but it's simple. It is simple. So I guess the question for you is, are you off? Are you missing? Are you not prioritizing God? Are you worshiping him first over your stuff, your things? Is your lifestyle more important than prioritizing God? What about is God's mission in your life first? These are all questions I ask myself. You know, and and if I'm honest, when I said priorities, worship, lifestyle, mission, when I ask myself those questions, I really felt the conviction of the Lord saying, I'm not first in all those areas, James. So listen, I'm not asking you to, and maybe you can check the boxes and say, man, I'm dialed in with Jesus right now. And I say, way to go. But if you're not, the correction is simple. God, I'm sorry. What do you want me to do that I was doing that honored you? What is the thing that you want me to put back in to my daily routine, my lifestyle? You know, maybe your moment is right now. See, I I think like this when I think in terms of how God works with us as men and women, that all of us come face to face with Jesus over and over again. And if you don't know him, he's like really, really persistent. And, and he's trying to demonstrate his love. And he'll put friends in your pathway, strangers in your pathway, work folks in your pathway. He'll just put people in front of you because he's trying to say over and over, come to me. I have new life for you. I want to make you new. He does it over and over and over. And I remember, like I said for myself, when I said yes to that, it was so remarkably freeing. I, there's not another time in my life that I can put those two things together and talk about how powerful they were. But maybe as you're sitting in the room right now, you've never invited him to be Lord. But if you were honest, you'd say he's kind of all over the place in your life. Heck, I might, you might even be sitting here today because somebody brought you, which is just an example of God trying to catch your heart. Maybe you're online and you're watching, you were scrolling and you decided to stop and listen. And you thought, hey, this guy's interesting. I'm not that interesting, but Jesus is. And that's why you stopped. So this is a moment where you just bow your heart and say, Jesus, if you wanna make yourself real to me, I'm here and I'm willing. I wanna open my heart to what you have for me. I want you to come in and show me that you're real. Remember, he's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. This is a moment to just say, God, I wanna do life your way. Now listen, if some of you are sitting here, maybe the Holy Spirit is identifying different areas in your life. I'm not first here, I'm not first there. You've kind of gotten lazy here. You're not serving anymore. You're not giving anymore. You're not listening any. I don't know what yours is. But I do know this, that that sense of conviction, that nudge of the Spirit, 
That's often how God works. It, it won't often come like a megaphone, like, go this way. A lot of times it's still. It's the tap on the shoulder. Hey, will you listen to me today? It's the tap on the shoulder. Hey, will you open up your Bible today? It's the tap on the shoulder. You're worrying a lot right now. Why don't you take a minute and pray instead? It's small adjustments. They're just little adjustments. But they center you into the peace of God. Man, I know how God works. I don't know all the ways he works. I know the way he works with me. He always is nudging me. Pay attention, James. Is he nudging you right now? Is he saying, pay attention? I also know this, he's really persistent. I mean, to the point of being relentless, he will not leave me alone when I'm off track. Is he not leaving you alone right now? Is he nudging, tapping, grabbing? And I know this, he's faithful, that even when he's correcting, he's loving me. Even when he's realigning, he's loving me. Even when he's giving me direction, he's faithful, he's loving me. And his truth is the truth. It's not many truths, just one truth. So listen, Santosh is just gonna play. He's not even gonna sing. I wanna give you 30 seconds, just a minute. I want you to listen, just listen. And then I'm gonna pray us out and we'll be done for the day. Father, as we just pray through a couple things and we wrap up today, we want to say first, thank you, God, for loving us. In church, you might want to pray silently along with me while I'm doing this, but you can tell God thank you yourself. God, we thank you that you're faithful. We thank you that you call us to repentance, which is a restored lifestyle. It's full of wholeness. It's full of redemption. It's, it's full of possibility. And God, I pray over us, particularly where the enemy has come in and spoken lies, deceptions, places where he's grabbed a hold of our lifestyle, our lives, where he's got us thinking wrong things and doing wrong things. And God, we just declare that your word says that if we'll repent, that you'll restore. If we'll humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that you will lift us up. So God, this is us bowing low, saying, God, I'm sorry for where I've missed it. I'm sorry for where I've not done things right. I'm sorry for, and you can name it to him, church. It's not a surprise to him. He knows where you're missing it. 
Jesus, we want to say this. We want to say thank you for the cross that it demonstrates God's possibility, his shed blood, his forgiveness, his restoration, his redemption. God, we thank you that you've given us a new life in Christ Jesus, that you've made us new creations in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you that even if we've made mistakes, you say that's not an issue for you. You say that even if we've done things wrong, that you're, not that you're okay with sin, but you're okay with us. We just need to bow low and say, God, would you restore and heal us? Would you change the way we're going? Redirect and lift us up. God, where the enemy has come in like a flood into many of our households, many of our lives, many of our family members, God, we ask in Jesus' name that you would raise up a standard against those attacks that come against us. God, I pray that we would leave today with a renewed love, a first love, that we would be able to say, Jesus, I love you first and foremost. I love you more than my wife. I love you more than my husband. I love you more than my stuff, my job, my kids, my lifestyle. You're first, you're best, you're the most, you're it. I love you because you love me first. God, we thank you that we're children. Whether we're 20 or 80, you don't care. We'll always be a child of the living God. So God, as you embrace us as a child, which means you embrace us as part of the family of God, I pray that we would go out with the security of belonging to you. Holy Spirit, thank you for your strength, your correction, your direction. Thank you for your wisdom. And God, as we step into this in future weeks, just grow us up, man. Make us new. Help us to see you differently, powerfully. So God, we commit our hearts to you. We say, have your way in each one of our lives. I feel led to pray this, so 30 more seconds. God, give us new dreams, new visions, new pictures. God, take down the excuses. I'm too old. I'm not fit enough. I'm not healthy enough. I, I don't want to. I don't have the time. God, give us new pictures of what it means to be a, a person who serves, who honors, who, who remembers and does the deeds that we did at first. God, I pray that it be fresh and new. As we go today, Jesus, we worship you. We celebrate you. Your goodness is like no other goodness. Your forgiveness like no other forgiveness. Your love like no other love. Grow us up in this season. Help us to become more and more like you. We love you, we worship you, and we praise you. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray, and everybody says what? Amen, amen. Hey, sorry I went a little long today. Um, I will tighten it up in coming weeks, don't worry. Um, for those of you who are hanging out to do the, the pack and pray, we'll be starting that in just a few minutes. Um, so stick around to help pack, and then also pack for the homeless ministry. For those of you who do have to, to go... I